Hey, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. And I'm returning to the Forgotten Victims series. Now, the episodes on Britney Spears were really timely and important, hence why this series was paused whilst I deconstructed developments as they happened in court. In the last episodes of The Forgotten Victims, episodes number 25, 26 and 27, I analysed P.S.'s psychopathology and profile. And admittedly, it's what most people want to learn about. But like I said, he's not the most important part of this case, but it's right to extrapolate the learning. And I still have a few more things to say about him, as well as the investigation, the police and media culture and those leading the investigation, as well as tying up some loose ends regarding the hoaxer, amongst other matters. But before I dive back in, I'm going to give the usual heads up that the content and information that you're going to hear may be triggering or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. You're going to hear about real victims, real cases, real perpetrators and their behaviour at real crime scenes. There are going to be some graphic details throughout. Unfortunately, it comes with the territory. Murder is distressing. Victims being killed and harmed is a truly terrible business. Okay, so where I landed with my professional analysis and from undertaking an indirect assessment of PS using the PCLR, I believed that PS was a psychopath, a sexual sadist, a necrophile, a serial rapist, a predatory stalker and a serial killer. And in my experience, most perpetrators tick multiple boxes and they don't fall into one category. Unfortunately, too often people, including professionals, try and create rigid and simplistic typologies and categories for perpetrators and their offending behaviour. However, in my experience, perpetrators and their behaviour don't work like that, and they don't fit into nice, neat categories. And in fact, if you put them in a box, they'd jump straight out of it. And the fact that PS was a psychopath doesn't absolve him of responsibility. And I'm talking about criminal responsibility. I believe that he knew exactly what he was doing. And the claim of hearing voices was just that. P.S. attacked, raped, harmed and killed women because he could. Because he enjoyed it. Because it made him feel powerful. And what's more, he felt entitled to. Like it was his right. And no one stopped him which further reinforced and greenlit his behaviour. P.S. believed women were inferior to him. He enjoyed the power and control, as most perpetrators do. And unfortunately, violence and abuse towards women is culturally rooted, and it is culturally accepted by far too many, including those charged with preventing and stopping it. You see, we say that violence against women and girls is unacceptable, but then it's accepted. When women come forward and report, the focus is often on their behaviour, what they did, what they said, what they wore, how they behaved, etc. Then look at what happens at court with violence against women and girls' cases. You just need to follow me on IG or on Twitter as I highlight case after case and you'll start to understand what's really going on and you'll start to see the pathetic sentences handed out to men who commit heinous acts against women and girls. Again, just look at the way violent men are sensationalised, rewarded and even glorified as serial killers when they murder women. The monikers, the platforming of them, the microphone handed over to the perpetrators, the TV shows, the merchandise and swag being sold, the sensationalised retelling and the making murder 
sexy in inverted commas, is just so disgusting and reprehensible to me. Yet many podcasters, producers and directors have no qualms about doing it. And all of this plays into normalising violence against women and girls. John Sutcliffe taught P.S. that it was okay to abuse, batter, control and humiliate your wife. He taught him that it was a man's world. He taught him dominate or be dominated. That was the lesson. And unfortunately, the system and people in it colluded with him, as they often do with the perpetrator, because he is a man. The ecosystem that supported P.S.'s behaviour and his criminal activity has not abated. I work in it every day. I challenge it and I fight it. Like I said, every single day. Just listen to my episodes on Britney Spears and the comparisons with the decisions taken in Britney's case versus those taken in Bill Cosby's case. In Cosby's case, professionals and others look for every reason for why he didn't do it and every reason why he should be freed. And check out all the articles written about Harvey Weinstein. He's back in the media as he's just been transferred to LA County to face trial for 11 counts of sexual assault. And yes, I will be covering the case on Crime Analyst. In every news report that I've read, Weinstein has been called the disgraced former media mogul or disgraced movie producer, rather than what he is, a convicted serial rapist. And it makes my blood boil. Call him what he is for the love of God. And he's not alone. It's highly contagious. There's Bill Cosby, who's characterised often as fallen America's dad, and Jeffrey Epstein, most often referred to as a former financier, rather than a convicted sex offender. It's really interesting to see how these serial perpetrators are framed and how their value is tied to their job and to their former success, rather than the reality of who they really are and what they've done and how they've treated women. In its simplest form, it's misogynistic and sexist, and it's so insulting to the survivors, to the women and the girls, who are most often referred to as the accusers. Now there's no mention of their job role, worth or achievements. They're reduced to an accuser. Just that word alone sows a seed of doubt that they may not be credible, and that's the intention. Now, when I've directly challenged some in the media, they state it's used for legal reasons. But really, it's not. Otherwise, it would be used when reporting on all other crime. And the origin of the word accuser and it being used is important to note. It was introduced by high-profile PR and reputation management company Sunshine Sachs, who were hired by Michael Jackson. And it has stuck ever since. And it's fascinating to note that most of these articles were written by men, some 40 years on from PS. So give it a googly and check it out. There's a bit of homework for you. And depressingly, we still have to challenge language and framing of cases and stories in the media. And here's another top tip. Don't just accept what you read and how something is framed. Look at the reporter, check them out and the language that they use. And always check the last paragraph of what they've written. Now I'm going to continue the then and now theme across my analysis, by the way. It's important to note what has changed, if anything, in the 40 years since PS. And so returning to PS, 
It's also important to note all of those who looked for every reason to excuse what he did, or hide or mask the extent of his offending behaviour. You see, after he was convicted, decisions were taken to destroy the forensic exhibits. Those decisions meant that it was almost impossible to link other offences and give other women and families the justice that they deserved. Remember in episode 24, I mentioned Alan Foster, the retired detective who handled all the exhibits in the case. Well, following the publication of Michael Bilton's book, The Hunt for the Yorkshire R, Wicked Beyond Belief, in mid-February 2003, which contained the revelations about P.S.'s rape-kill kit that P.S. wore under his jeans, while the retired West Yorkshire detective Alan Foster contacted a crime reporter who worked for the Yorkshire Evening Post called David Bruce. He told him he'd been in charge of the exhibits in the case, and he was told to incinerate them all post-trial. Now again, I commented on what an extraordinary decision this was. Why would they want to destroy the evidence straight after the trial? Everything about this decision feels wrong. Of course P.S. may have committed other offences. They knew that at the time. And according to Alan's wife Christine, who is now sadly a widow as Alan has since passed, Alan was obsessed with the case, even after P.S. was convicted. He believed that P.S. could be responsible for at least 47 violent attacks. It's the reason that he disobeyed the directive and he kept some of the exhibits, including the rape kill kit that P.S. wore on his legs that exposed his penis. Furthermore, the retired detective could not understand why this item wasn't entered into evidence at the trial. As he said, it would have contradicted his plea of diminished responsibility. The rape kill kit story made the front page of the Yorkshire Evening Post. The local MP for Leeds North East... Fabian Hamilton wrote to the Home Secretary demanding an investigation into the decision to move P.S. to Broadmoor and asked for P.S. to be removed back to prison to serve his sentence as determined by the jury at his criminal trial. He also made the case that it was what the families wanted too and that they were distressed by the decision. Now, according to Michael Bilton, author of the book Wicked Beyond Belief, the Home Secretary, David Blunkett, was quick to reply and he apparently wrote that it was in fact the revelations in Michael Bilton's book, the revelations that P.S. feigned his mental illness, that would cause distress to the families of those affected by P.S.'s crimes. Let's just pause for a moment and let that sink in. If this were true, David Blunkett, the then Home Secretary, was basically saying that the journalist Michael Bilton, revealing that key evidence had been withheld, which showed that P.S. was cheating the system, that this reveal was the problem and that that was what was upsetting the families rather than P.S.'s actual behaviour and the then cover-up. Seriously. That's some terrible interpretation and spin right there and paints a very disturbing picture. These are serious allegations and revelations that merit further investigation, in my opinion. But, if that were true, the script was flipped, and it was Michael Bilton that came under scrutiny. Furthermore, David Blunkett said that he would only consider moving P.S. back to prison on the basis of medical evidence that P.S. no longer needed treatment, and he said that he had received no such recommendation. 
Fabian Hamilton and other MPs continue to push for an independent inquiry into a miscarriage of justice and a debate in Parliament. Crikey, this case just gets murkier and murkier. There are so many unanswered questions, and perhaps now you can see how and why it's so important to understand motivation and document your decision-making. Every decision must be documented. The fact that the police didn't do their job and enter the rape kill kit into evidence at the trial, as well as questioning P.S. about the other possible offences when he was confessing, had grave repercussions down the line. This is perhaps the second and third gravest travesties about the case. And it resulted in P.S. spending 30 years in Broadmoor Psychiatric Hospital with all the privileges that afforded was diagnosed a paranoid schizophrenic and sent to Broadmoor Hospital, but is now deemed well. Neil Jackson is pleased being moved to a high-security prison. His mother, Emily, was stabbed 51 times. Let him go back and suffer. He's had a very cushy life. I work six days a week, sometimes seven. And he gets better fed than I do. Life inside Broadmoor was shown in this documentary. Patients have a wide choice of food and there's 24-hour access to television and the internet. Life in prison would be dramatically different. Broadmoor costs taxpayers £325,000 a year per person. In comparison, prison costs 45000 Prisoners have to earn privileges to watch TV, have limited internet access and are expected to work or take part in education or training. Three decades after his conviction, an independent panel of medical experts ruled well. But a man capable of killing so many people will have to be kept under constant review. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go to? What do you need to face the day? Now for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean skin loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics' Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crime analyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. 
calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. In 2016, P.S. left Broadmoor and was moved back into mainstream prison. He was transferred to Franklin Prison in County Durham after psychiatrists deemed he could be treated in prison. So I wonder what the difference was in 2016. Like, why could he be treated in prison from 2016 when he couldn't before, despite the fact that he didn't take any meds for about 10 years? It's baffling. But of course, P.S. didn't want to be transferred. He continued in his quest to get transferred from Category A, Franklin Prison, to a lesser secure prison to get more freedom and privileges right up until July 2020. He was in the psychopathy unit there with others like Levi Belfield and Ian Huntley. And P.S., of course, continued to try and game the system. He was relentless, claiming that he was no longer dangerous and should be moved to a more relaxed prison so that he could be closer to his relatives. When his last attempt to have his Category A status downgraded was denied, he was apparently very upset and moaned and complained to others about how tough prison was. Well, yes, there is that, as it should be when you've killed many women. This is just yet more evidence of his narcissism and poor me syndrome. And P.S. later contracted COVID and died just days later. He also had other underlying health issues like severe heart disease, diabetes, and he'd also had a pacemaker fitted at the beginning of November. His next of kin was listed as Sonia. And of course, the media had a field day, covering every aspect of his death and him. And so the circus continued like he was a celebrity with many obituaries being written, as I said at the very start of this case. Just like Bill Cosby, they get the attention. And it's absurd, really. We should just forget about them. It shouldn't be newsworthy. And talking about the media, you might think culture at the time isn't relevant, but it really is, as well as who's writing the news headlines and the stories. It has a massive impact on the framing of a story, and the words that are used. And I want to circle back to that. With every case, I put it in its context at the time, and I like to compare and contrast with the here and now. Well, here's some insight from reporter Krista Aykroyd, who was a newbie local reporter in Halifax at the time, and she's with Elaine Benson, who was a rare female detective who worked in the incident room, and you'll also hear DC Andy Latchew talking on the BBC's Reunion podcast in 2016. Dr Aykroyd, you were a cub reporter, I think, at that point, in your teens. I was 18 years old. I'd just taken up my first job with the Halifax Evening Courier. I was 
quite disillusioned very quickly that my role as a reporter would be very much a writer of golden weddings and women's issues and that um, these kind of stories were left to men to cover. It was like that then, wasn't it? There was a crime reporter and it was his job to do the serious uh, news stories and as a woman we had to very quickly fight for a position. Well, it's interesting. I was going to ask Elaine uh, Benson about this because this was the time, mid-70s, when I think women in the police force were being amalgamated into uh, the general force where the men were. It was all... Things were changing. Oh, we were like the token gesture, really. I was a probationary uh, constable at Batley at the time. Uh, When I joined the police, you'd have one woman on each shift. And I wanted to be that one woman in CID. So you had to work really hard. It was a man's world. And he left you. In fact, we welcomed police women coming in because it would be nice to have some glamour around for a change, you know. But I don't think it would have made any difference to the actual outcome. So have things changed since the 1970s in terms of reporting and the media? Well, some would argue that some progress has been made, yes, but a lot of investigative journalists are still men, and most crime reporters are still men. So no, not really. And it's interesting that Andy Lapchew seemed to think that women were there to add glamour to the police force. Seriously? I mean, that's not even casual sexism. And we're not in the 1970s. But it's insightful that he said having women work on the case wouldn't have made a difference to the outcome of the case. Well, I respectfully disagree. The literature on senior police officer decision-making actually shows that female leaders make better decisions. And I think it would have made a world of difference. Women being involved would know that they were not looking for a monster, for example. They were looking for a man who was targeting women, who was talking to them, and could talk them into going with him. And according to a number of my sources, apparently there were meetings between the male reporters and strip bars. They used to call them fish and strip. That's right, where you fish for a story in a strip bar. That was an actual thing, and how business was done for so many. So it's no wonder women weren't allowed to be part of it. And I think you now get the general gist as to how women working in the police at the time were treated. And so it's no wonder there was this constant narrative about women of loose morals. And with the man who headed up the investigation, Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield, unhelpfully commenting, and I quote, most of his victims have been of somewhat doubtful moral character. Well, that's what was consistent across the time and even now in the narrative that's out there about this case. Well, here's Elaine and Krista once more. Elaine Benson, we heard uh, Chief Constable Gregory pointing out earlier that the super policeman hasn't yet been born. What's your view, looking back, on what might have been done better? Bearing in mind hindsight is a fine thing. Well, we had very few women in the force at that time. And unfortunately, because of the way it had been, we hadn't got the experienced female detective police officers who may have had the feminine side covered with the ladies like Olive Smelt. Krista? 
just the softer touch to go into someone like Olive and say, talk to me again about the accent, would have helped. It would have helped us as women. It would have made us feel safer. It would have been more reflective of society and more reflective of the victims that was killing. So you heard the interviewer Sue McGregor ask what might have been done better. And Elaine says that there were few women on the force at the time and that the feminine touch, the feminine side was needed, a softer touch, and that would have made women feel safer. Now, I personally and professionally believe that female police officers and detectives offer so much more than that. It's not just about communication, empathy, high EQ, emotional intelligence, compassion, and getting people to open up and build trust and confidence, although all these are key skills that you need in policing. It's also about a different POV and perspective, a different point of view. And it's about the basics being done well, making good and sound decisions, and taking the ego and narcissism out of decision-making. Well, you might be curious by exactly what I mean by that. Well, here are some examples of what I've discovered and revealed throughout my reinvestigation regarding decision-making and the investigation. You see, the only tangible evidence that they had at the time was either not acted upon or halted. And these were conscious decisions. So starting with the photo fits, we now know that the photo fits were withheld. They had photo fits of the distinctive-looking bearded man from 1972 onwards, but a strategic decision was made not to put them out. You see, P.S. was right under their noses all that time, and what's more, he didn't change his appearance one bit between 1969 and 1981. Now, in Michael Bilton's book, he included the police mugshots of P.S. in 1969 and 1981, and it's astounding that P.S. looks almost identical. And I'll post them on social media, and I'm going to return to the photo fits. Other key lines of investigation were halted, including Detective Superintendent Hobson's tyre track inquiry, which was halted halfway through, as was Chief Inspector Jack Ridgway's £5 note inquiry. And furthermore, the other potential offences were intentionally not linked. Now, circling back to the tyre track inquiry, which I talked about in episode four, the police knew that the killer was mobile in a car, and so the car was important. They had a cross-match on the tyre prints at a number of crime scenes. In fact, early on, the police had the tyre marks that matched across three crime scenes, Irene Richardson, Jean Jordan and Marilyn Moore. And so this should have been the number one line of inquiry. And it was. They'd worked through three quarters of them, and then they discontinued this line of inquiry. If they had have continued, they would have found P.S., who owned a Ford Corsair at the time. Detective Superintendent Dennis Hoban was originally the SIO, the senior investigating officer in Wilma McCann and Emily Jackson's and Irene Richardson's case, and he was pushing for this to happen. Now, Detective Superintendent Hoban was effectively ACC George Oldfield's number two and head of Western Area CID based in Bradford. Then, when Jay MacDonald was killed, ACC Oldfield took over as head of the investigation. Consequently, Detective Superintendent Jim Hobson then took over Irene Richardson's case. Now, due to personality clashes, ACC Oldfield kept Detective Superintendent Dennis Hoban at arm's length. 
And now one of the key challenges was that ACC Oldfield was doing two huge jobs. He was running the investigation and he was also acting as Assistant Chief Constable and Head of Crime for West Yorkshire Police. Now, both these roles are massive, and it's astonishing to me that Chief Constable Gregory agreed to this. In my opinion, it's a major leadership problem and failure. A neutral crime chief would have helped someone independent, and it was also felt by some that ACC Oldfield was too emotionally involved, and many felt that Detective Superintendent Dennis Hoban would have been better running the investigation as he was an experienced detective and more level-headed. However, they didn't work well together. Now, sadly, Detective Superintendent Dennis Hoban died on March the 15th, 1978. He was only 51 years old. And his best friend, Detective Superintendent Jim Hobson, said straight away that he had worked himself into an early grave, and many felt that he had died due to the strain of the investigation. But many thought the chances of solving the case and arresting the offender quickly died with him. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, so do you remember in episode four, I threw out the question about who made the decision to discontinue the tyre track inquiry? Well, now we know it was ACC Oldfield who made that decision. And Detective Superintendent Jim Hobson tried to appeal it at the time, but the problem was he had no one to appeal it to. ACC Oldfield was in charge of the investigation and he was also head of crime for the entire police service. And then there's the £5 note inquiry, which was noted by Commander Jim Neville from New Scotland Yard and Chief Inspector Jack Ridgway from Greater Manchester Police as being the best chance of catching the killer. What I'm going to detail next is from Michael Bilton's book. Now, bear in mind that Michael Bilton spoke with Chief Inspector Ridgway. And Chief Inspector Ridgway felt that the Bank of England had been uncooperative in the £5 note inquiry and also that the senior leaders had shut down this line of inquiry. But despite this, he never gave up. He went back to see the Bank of England in London, and they said they would reprint the entire batch of £5 notes and send them to Shipley, and that's exactly what they did. And so Chief Inspector Jack Ridgway took a large volume inquiry and reduced it from 5,943 who may have received the £5 note to 240 employees. And as I said before, one of the firms was Clark's, who had 41 employees, and P.S. was on that list. This was truly a good investigative strategy. The problem was only seven of the employees had additional information on them in the incident room, and this was despite the fact that P.S. had been interviewed six times by the team, including the two £5 note interviews in 1977. And so the real failure here is that P.S. featured in the triple area sighting, the cross area sighting, and the tracking inquiry, and he was also on the £5 note inquiry list, and he'd been written up as a strange runner, and he had a history of violence. Now, there really can't have been any other men who ticked all these boxes. As Michael Bilton wrote, 
The failure to identify PS and 10 other persons on the list of 241 who were subjects of separate lines of inquiry in the investigation sowed the seeds of further interview failures and basically allowed PS to commit 23 more murders and two more serious assaults. Well, quite, yes, but I suspect it was more women than that whom PS harmed and killed across the time. But the sentiment is right. And there's one other noteworthy point that I want to make about Chief Inspector Jack Ridgway from Greater Manchester Police. Now, according to Michael Bilton, on the day ACC Oldfield returned to work, January the 7th, 1980, Chief Inspector Ridgway gave strict instructions to officers conducting the interviews that no one was to be eliminated on the basis of handwriting or accent. He also told the officers that houses, garages and vehicles were to be thoroughly searched and anyone who they're unhappy with should be brought into the police station for further interviews. Thereafter, PS was interviewed three more times within a single month. Now, I've already given you an overview of these interviews. Now, they were brief, as I discovered upon reading the Byford report that the detail about these interviews had been redacted when they published the Byford report in 2006. That was news to me. And I want to know why, as I said in episode 14, when upon reading and analysing the Byford report, I discovered that eight other pages detailing those particular interviews had not been published. And that's pages 77 to 83. And I submitted an FOIA request in April to see if the Home Office would be willing to share them with me. Well, since then, I've been brushed off five times by the Home Office. I was originally told I'd receive a response on April the 28th, Then they emailed me to say it would be May the 26th and then on May 27th I received an email outlining that I would receive more information on June 23rd and then again on July 21st. You get the picture. At this stage I do feel like I'm being brushed off but I'm tenacious. I'll keep going and I'll update you once I know one way or the other and let's hope they make the right decision, hey? Meanwhile I've been comparing what Michael Bilton wrote in his book dubbed by many as the definitive account of the investigation as to what was written in the Byford report. Now, I want to share with you a couple of points about this which are fascinating. The first print of the book ran in 2003, and so this was before the Byford report was published following an FOIA in 2006. But Michael Bilton got his hands on a copy of the Byford report in 1998. Wait, what? How? What sort of sorcery was this, I hear you ask? Yep, me too. But that's why people dub his book The Definitive Account. He read and heard things about the case that others simply were not privy to, including other police officers. And when I was writing up my own notes, I noted that he published more information than what was in the Byford report about the 1980 police interviews, for example. And he also published many of the photo fits, photo fits that I've never seen produced anywhere else. And of course, I'm curious about that. How did he have such good access to the material? Who gave him access? So Michael, if you're listening, I'd love to know. And one thing I really like about the book was that he made it clear right from the start that he had no interest in P.S. the individual, and he had no interest in interviewing him. Bravo for not centering him in this narrative. And I was also fascinated by what he wrote about the photo fits, And there's a double-page spread of the photo fits, many, like I said, I've never seen before. Do take a look at them. I'll post them on my Twitter, Facebook and Instagram account. And I'm going to say something more about them in next week's episode. 
And like I said, he included the mugshots of PS from 1969 and 1981. And what strikes me from looking at those images is how distinctive PS was in appearance and how he hadn't changed a single bit. I've already said that before, but when you see the police mugshots, it's even more striking and compelling. Well, this is what Michael Bilton wrote on page 165. Tracy Brown and Marcella Claxton, along with several other victims, were never included in the series, though there was an extraordinary similarity in the photo fit descriptions they had given, which now lay unnoticed in the police files. It's just a few sentences, and you'd be forgiven for skimming over it and thinking it unremarkable if you didn't know the case and haven't been listening to the podcast. Because remember, that's not what Detective Superintendent DeMarle said. He said that the photo fits of the bearded man were not unnoticed. He said that he and ACC Oldfield went toe-to-toe on it, or words to that effect, and ACC Oldfield didn't want to put them out in case he, the perpetrator, shaved his beard off. Yet this was the only concrete thing that they had to go on at the time. And remember, this case went on to be called the biggest manhunt in history, and that this was a cunning killer, when all the while he was right under their noses. And furthermore, other officers said that they didn't want to link the offences. And you'll also recall that Detective Superintendent Jim Hobson actually changed Marcella's description of the man who attacked her when he talked to the media. So I wonder where or from whom Michael Bilton got this information from. Now remember, Michael was an investigative writer for the Sunday Times magazine too, and he broke the story of the rape kill kit worn by P.S., the fact that it was never entered into evidence at court. But I also discovered something else. The documentary Manhunt, the search for the Yorkshire R word, well, you've heard me refer to it throughout the podcast. Well, that's Michael Bilton's work too. He made the Manhunt documentary for ITV in 1999, and it was nominated for Best Factual Series at BAFTA in 2000. And the documentary premiered a year after he read a copy of the Byford Report, and the book came thereafter in 2003. Well, you can watch the documentary on YouTube, and there's a link in the show notes. Well, what piqued my interest in the documentary was that Dick Holland popped up quite a lot in it. And I was curious about why he would take part in the documentary, particularly at a time when the Byford Report had been buried. And right at the end of the documentary, the framing struck me as odd. And I'm going to share it with you now. The voiceover is by Janet Suzman, and she's just talked about P.S. being stabbed in prison. You'll hear the segue into the section I want you to hear, and then you'll hear Dick Holland talking towards the end about what happened to him and George Oldfield. But was not the only man to be punished as a result of the case. We didn't anticipate the degree of criticism that we got. They published their reports and senior officers were criticised. As a result of that, I and other officers were banished into uniform to different parts of the force. We were moved, it was said at the time, in my case, for career development. Career development with 20 months to go to pension. Obviously, That was an excuse for what was a political move with a small p. Mr. Oldfield was moved to become ACC support services. Nothing of a job, really. 
they control things like horses and dogs and the the trivia of the police force. I felt sorry for him because he had worked to the stage of injuring his health. Uh, and uh, then uh, just got kicked out sideways as a result. Four years later, George Oldfield died. Well, what did you make of that? For me, it's a bit of PMS, poor me syndrome, creeping in. And this is the penultimate thing we learn and that we're left with as the audience. Although to Michael Bilton's credit, it is Theresa's voice we hear right at the very end, a reminder of what PS did. But I did wonder about the framing of the PMS from the police. And admittedly, I haven't connected the documentary and the book, both being by Michael Bilton. It just stood out to me as odd. And so when I check the acknowledgements at the front of Michael Bilton's book, there's a paragraph about the documentary, and he says that the book was conceived and the research had begun before he made the documentary. Well, that's an interesting timeline too. And he goes on to acknowledge all of the police officers who appeared in the documentary, including Dick Holland, Trevor Lapish, David Zacherson, Andrew Lapchu, John DeMarle, Sir Lawrence Byford and Sir Andrew Sloan, and he thanked them for their help with both projects and for their friendship over the years. Well, here's what Michael Bilton wrote about Dick Holland. My friendship with Dick Holland has lasted since the late 1970s. He was at the heart of the R investigation for four long years, and in many respects, this book is his story and could not have been written without him. We've discussed every aspect of the subject endlessly, I've never known Dick Holland to shirk personal responsibility for the things that went wrong with the R investigation, and I believe him 100% when he says there were honest mistakes. He has a habit of being truthful, even when the truth reflects against himself. I've never ceased to be amazed that he should place such trust in me to tell the story of the investigation. He and his colleagues did their best, but they have to live with their failure to catch the Yorkshire R sooner. Well, for me, therein lies a conflict. It's largely Dick Holland's account. It's also an account written by two men, two men who are friends. And as I said in the last episode, almost everything that's been written and reported about this case has come from men. Well, as we now know from multiple sources, the Lapchu report was handed to Detective Superintendent Holland and it was filed by Detective Superintendent Holland after he told DC Andrew Lapchu that if anyone mentioned the photo fits again, they'd be sent back to traffic. He then gave two versions of his account, just years apart, the last one being in Michael Bilton's ITV manhunt. The first version was that he didn't remember the Lapchu report. The other was that he remembered it and that PS had already been eliminated on handwriting and accent, which we know wasn't true. And so he filed it. And when Sir Lawrence Byford investigated this, and on finding that the report had vanished, he wrote this. I cannot help concluding that one or other of the senior officers involved in these events is now loathe to accept responsibility for what, in effect, was a serious error of judgment. Well, perhaps that's the understatement of this investigation, very diplomatically put. And my curiosity was piqued early on about ACC George Oldfield and Detective Superintendent Dick Holland's backgrounds, particularly given the decisions that they made throughout this high-profile investigation. And I'm going to share with you what I discovered next week. I guarantee you will not want to miss this, and so I hope you'll join me back in the intelligence cell next week for the forgotten victims. Until then, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instincts. (laughs) 
And here's my final two cents before the episode wraps. The first is a huge thank you to all of you, my lovely listeners and crime analysts, for tuning in every week. The second is an ask. If you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review on whichever platform you listen to me on. It really helps others find me and helps with the ratings. So thank you, thank you. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Tim Hansen at Half Ogre Studios. Cover art and graphics by Chris Raybottom at Syndicate. And music by Kilrude. <laughs>